Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hype for your co-host. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch and myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Gen Activist. As always, we are so grateful and excited to invite you into our virtual living room for a conversation that we hope inspires and sets intention. Yeah, and we're super excited today because we're going to be talking to two Black women about a topic that's really, really dear um, to me and Virginia and G-Mom about Black land ownership. And so we're really excited to have a mother and daughter, Crystal and Devin Daniel. And I actually went to undergrad at the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns with um, Devin and was in organizations with her and all of that. And so when I saw that her family purchased this land and cultivated it and built on it, I knew that I wanted to have her on. So I just want to take a moment to introduce them. Crystal Daniel is a native Texan who was born in a small town called Chester and grew up in Houston. She went to undergrad at the University of Houston and has spent much of her career in the financial industry. In her spare time, she enjoys taking care of her family, cooking, gardening, and working on her land at Thelma Wood. Devin is a born and raised Houstonian. Devin is a former public relations professional where she helped hospitality and lifestyle clients gain media attention. Now she serves as the managing director for two Creative Circle offices. Hello, a specialized staffing agency for creative talent. And she loves helping people navigate career paths, salary, and raise conversations and career pivots. And today we're excited to welcome them to the pod to talk about Thelma We are spanning some generations here today. Super excited for that. So talk to us about a ranch that they were able, well, I guess Devin didn't purchase it, but Crystal and her husband were able to purchase in 2017 this name, Thelma Wood. So if you could just tell us really what sparked your interest in purchasing this piece of land and then why did you name it that? Well, I guess for me, um, I guess you could say it was a sentimental journey. I grew up in the area where I ended up purchasing land. And so uh, for me, it was just coming back to a place where I was, I felt loved. I felt uh, peace and free. And I just wanted to come home to my roots and get that feeling again. So it was a place where I was thinking, maybe this would be a good place to go home and retire. So, you know, back when I was growing up, you know, summers were just the best. You know, I have those memories mm -hmm. in my head. We have all of our cousins come down from Houston and we would play outside all day long. We would go picking berries, muscadines, plums and the like. All this stuff was just really in the woods, believe it or not. We'd walk together to vacation Bible school in the evenings 
And it was just a place and time where, you know, you just, you just felt free and, and you can't find that anywhere else today. Um, so coming home was just a thing that came to mind. About five years ago, I was sitting on my grandmother's porch and some land across from her had been cleared off. It was a place that I'd been familiar with all my life, but as Mama G said, it was a place where maybe an acre of that land had been cleared off. Mm -hmm. So I never could really get the overall feel of what it looked like. But in this particular day, about 20 acres had been cleared. And what I could see was some soft rolling hills and pond was there that I never knew about. And I looked at it and for some reason, it just spoke to me. I, I, I could see where I wanted to be there. I was like, wow, I would love to have a home on that spot, a farmhouse with a porch. And I was sitting there with my aunt and she said, you know, I was telling her this story and all of a sudden, you know, I looked at her and I said, can you, can you see that house? And she says, yeah, I can see it. I I said, "Um, you know, can you see us drinking that lemonade on the porch as old lady? She says, yeah, I can see it. And it was just interesting that how that moment made me feel like, because she bought into my dream, Mm -hmm. made me feel like I could do it. And I never gave up on my zest for, you know, coming back home, buying some land and going back to my roots. So that's what it was all about for me. I love that. I mean, it, I mean, I literally, it felt like you were walking us through that. Like, I felt like I was walking through the woods and seeing that and some things that, you know, you surfaced and just telling us a little bit about the impetus for buying that land that I think is so beautiful. One is you said you felt free. And I think that's such a, a strong through line through many of our stories as Black people in this country. Like, what does freedom look like, right? What does our liberation look like? And so to do that through land is so incredible. And that you are the visionary in your family. And so, Devin, I would love to hear from you as sort of this next generation watching your mother envision this and then bring that dream to fruition, but then the role that you get to play as the daughter and the next generation that will hopefully take care of that land. Definitely. It's a huge sense of pride, you know, to see the process. First, my mom and my dad, they are two individuals who I think it's it's good to bring this up because G-Mom was mentioning at the beginning how she had the garden and it was only an acre. And I think it's important for people to know how possible this is for everyone. Both of my parents, I mean, they didn't come from generational well, to contrast the 25 acres that they have, I was sitting at a lunch two weekends ago with a Black family, and they were mentioning their uh, ranch in Mississippi, and their family has 400 acres, True. and it's been generational, which is amazing. Yeah. For for my family, we don't have generational wealth, so my mom and dad have bootstrapped every single thing that they have ever done. Mm-hmm. And so being able to have Elma Wood and the land, it just creates that precedent now moving forward they have something to give to me and my sister, Megan. And it's just a big sense of pride and security and ownership that, you know, we didn't have before. Yeah, I grew up in um, East Texas, so Tyler, Texas. And I actually grew up in the house that my mom was raised in by her grandmother. So it was my great grandmother's house. And I'm going to talked with my mom actually later in the podcast about that land. But when you talked about the freedom to play, like we went outside all day, all day. And on either side of me were my cousins. 
and pretty much the whole neighborhood was my cousins. And so there was just a lot of freedom to imagine and a lot of freedom to just roam. And, you know, we didn't have like great TV because we were way out in the country. So I wasn't like sitting in front of a TV a lot. There was no street lights. all everything that you were describing, I was like, oh gosh, there is a difference in being able to have like that kind of childhood where where there's such a freedom to it. So that was really that really connected with me. I was like, oh, I missed that. And today, we still own that land, part of it, and then part of it, my cousin's own. And so also trying to do the best that we can to keep that in the family. I want to cover, well, wait, I did have a question about why'd you name it Thelma Wood? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Um, my parents, my grandparents, rather, I call them mom and dad because they raised me until I was 10 years old. They're Roosevelt and Thelma Lee Johnson. But I was like, Rose is so strong. I love that. Roosevelt and Thelma. <laughs> yes. So they raised me until I was 10 years old and, you know, they were, we were poor, you know, uh, we never had much in the way of material things, but they were such special people and they had such a way of, of loving us and supporting us and working hard and sharing what they had with not only us, but everyone in the community that I didn't even know we were poor to much later on in my life. <laughs> That's how much we were, you know, just taken care of and every, all our needs were met. So when I thought back on that, it wasn't, you know, a feeling of, you know, I was just embarrassed about our station in life, you know, where we were poor and didn't have much. But I was thinking about all the sacrifices that they had made to, you know, make sure we were cared for and make sure that we had what we needed to, to extend that really to the next, to the next generation. Yeah. And I can't think of a time when, you know, when I think of them, that they were not trying to help someone else. So when I thought about naming this property, I played around with several different names, but Thelma Wood just kind of stuck. And I know my granddad will forgive me for that, that I left him <laughs> out. <laughs> but it's Thelma Wood struck. Uh, she had such a strong presence in the family, just a strong woman. And like I said, she sacrificed so much for our education, mm -hmm. things that they didn't get to have. And so, you know, it was, it was just my intent to honor them in some way. And so for all of their contributions and sacrifices that they've made for their family and the community. But you didn't leave your granddad out. So the land is called Thelma Wood, but the house that sits on the land, it's named Bishop Manor. We don't use that name as much, but he's still <laughs> included. And I think I wanna add on to what you're saying, mom, because I think what you're trying to convey about Thelma Lee is just that she did make a lot of sacrifices. And so my mom grew up whenever she was younger, watching Thelma Lee go and clean white people's homes, you know, homes that she would never be able to enter or to dine in. My, my mom was able to sit down at the table and and eat with these families. And I think the reason why the, the home and the land is so important to my mom is it's just the legacy of Thelma Lee and all that work she did. This is the physical manifestation of that. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to share with you a story of, of, of uh, and Virginia, you know Najla? Do you remember Najla? Yeah, yeah. Well, she became a goddaughter, sort of like a daughter to me. And there were a lot of unfortunate things living here in California, events that occurred in her life. Her father was out of her life in an unfortunate way. However, he came from a family with land. And so she would always say to me, even as a teenager, and while she was rearing her children, call me mom. She said, mom, my dad left me a part of the pro family property in Alabama. 
and someday I'm going to go back and build a house on it. So she would just say it, and I wouldn't pay too much attention to it. So circumstances, her children all grew up, and she just felt a restlessness. So she went back and rekindled her relationship with her father's family. They had all of this land. It was parceled out. Each person had a part of it. Uh, and she has since gone back to Alabama and she lived with one of her aunts while she worked and earned the money. And now she's built a house on that land. And I just see an empowerment in her in claiming that land. That's the one legacy she has from her father that a plot was set aside. So they live in almost like a commune. Everybody has his her part of the land and they share it and they work it together but it's a good story of a family a black family that was able to hold on to land and the legacy comes down through generations so I, I wish I had thought about that I would love to have had her share this podcast with us and how empowering it has been to her as a young woman yeah for sure I think um you know Thinking about that, it took me a long time to appreciate what it meant to grow up on that land and that my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather had cultivated it. I think when I was young, obviously, I didn't have an appreciation for it. And then, Devin, when you talk about the fact that she was cleaning white people's homes, that's exactly what my great-grandmother did. And for the longest, they didn't have an indoor bathroom. And it was one of those white families that she was cleaning the homes for that said, we want to give you this bathroom. So that's how they ended up with their first indoor bathroom. But I think the ability to go and do those things and clean, and my mom talks about going with her, also sparked their imagination on what they could have and what they could build, right? And so now to see like generations later and we, you know, still own it, it's such a testament to their legacy. And I now often think about dirt and what stories dirt holds. You know, what does this dirt hold? There's so much, I think, that people have toiled for and people have sacrificed for, and maybe not even knowing that's what they were sacrificing for, that gets erased if we don't document the stories and pass them down. So I think it's also important to have these conversations so that these stories can be documented and passed down like generation to generation. I saw an Instagram post, Devin, that you did where you talked about, well, there's actually two. One, you talk about Black farmers and the importance of that. And then there's another Instagram post where you talk about getting the land in Chester, Texas, and how you have now started to get very invested in Black land ownership. So can you just talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So whew, this is a big one. Um, I want to go back to what you mentioned about being able to see the vision of what you could potentially have, because I think that's what will help me with this entire answer. You know, my mom, she always would talk about um, the fact that she loves to entertain and host people, but that her mother didn't really do that. And she didn't learn it from her mom, but she saw other people doing it. So now that my parents have the land in Thelma Wood, there have been family members, friends, they're all black people who see it. And now they're going and doing it because mm. they saw someone else do it. And that's really all that it takes. And I think it goes back to the idea of generational wealth that you guys talk about on the podcast. I wouldn't have thought about these things. I Figured I would graduate college, get a good job, get married, get a house, you know, whatever, do the regular things that people do. But I have been able to watch my parents invest in this land and I've seen them do the process. And now 
I'm like, oh, well, I can go do that too. And the land around the, the surrounding areas, we're thinking about so many things for the future there. I mean, it's a country town. They need a coffee shop. They need recreational spaces for the community. And Thelmawood, let me tell you, I, I thought Thelmawood would be some place where I could go and have peace on the weekends. <laughs> that is not a thing. It is the gates open on Saturday. And whether it's a family member, cousin, friend, it is a place for the community to come. We have a bar on the land and uh, football season. I mean, it's a party every Sunday, <laughs> all day long. My parents are not yet retired. So it becomes funny, a funny situation on a Sunday night when everyone down there is retired on their land, but my parents have to get up on Monday morning. They, everybody wants to party, but we love it. We love it because it's a place that didn't exist before and we can all just come there in fellowship. So I committed years ago to every chance I got to talk about land ownership and Black people to bring up the 1928 plan, which is part of Austin's history that is not as well known and not taught and not talked about. But we believe that everyone has a responsibility to learn the history of the spaces that they occupy and to honor the history of the people who have gone before them. So we just want to take a moment to tell you about the 1928 plan. All right, y'all, story time. So after emancipation, the state of Texas was one of four states that was late in freeing their slaves. And Austin, Texas became the first site of black freedom in the whole state. Many black freedom towns were created, Clarksville, Kitchenville, Pleasantville. And this was prime real estate in the middle central west side of Austin. And so fast forward to the early 1920s, the city of Austin did a survey to assess what was the most valuable land in the city. Well, Kitchenville, Pleasantville, Clarksville, all of these beautiful, brilliant, and vibrant Black communities were part of that assessment. So the city of Austin created a policy, a legal binding way to forcibly remove Black people, Indigenous people, and Mexican-Americans at the time. And not only was it done through legal measures, but through intimidation. If Black people refused to sell their land, the city would cut off their city resources. No trash pickup, electricity. And if your trash piled up, the city would fine you. If you couldn't pay the fine, then you would be evicted. And so when we think about our connection to land, the story of Black people and brown people and people of color in this country, it's important that we understand our history, that we understand the ways in which Black people have been forcibly removed from the communities they built continue to have to endure not only gentrification, but cultural erasure. And so we encourage you to find out the stories, the untold, invisible stories of the cities you live in. What I was thinking as you were talking, Devin, was this idea of reclaiming spaces and going home. You know, you talked about that, Crystal, and this idea of going home. You had this vision to go home. And I think about that as such an important piece of our story collectively as Black people and in our individual nuanced stories of like, what's home base? Always having a home base. Who is that person in your family or your community? And it's sort of, I think we're, we're always trying to create a space for connection. And I think about that in my own family story 
um, with my my grandmother, uh, G mom, you know, she built that homestead in Los Angeles. And, you know, I grew up in Austin, Texas, right? But every other summer, we would spend two months in LA. All the cousins would come. She has 16 grandchildren. And that was like our home base. And there was this idea, this connection, what you're envisioning to build of like our grandparents are stewards of this community, right? This home that we get to go to in the summer, but we can also walk down the street and People know our grandfather, right? He's pastor. My grandmother's educating the children in this community. And so I, I would love to hear from you, Crystal and Devin, just sort of when you think about what this space has meant for you in the present, given all the things that we are grappling with as Black people, this idea of being in these spaces that don't see us, that don't value us. What does it mean to have a space where you can cultivate joy and you can, in some ways, impart hope, this idea that, hey, you can own land, that you can build community. What has that meant for you in the present? Well, for me, I can say that when we first started to clear the land and then we started to build, even though we're in the country, we have a, a visible spot, meaning there's a major highway that's very close by. And so when you pass by, you can you can see our home that sits on the hill. It's a little white farm house. And you know the land compared to Many others in the area is is pretty vast in terms of what we cleared and what you can see. And so as people started to, you know, realize who we were and, you know, for some that was, you know, we were family, others just, um, you know, members of the community and so forth. I started hearing many stories how no one even believed that that place belonged to Black people Oh wow. simply because of, you know, its sheer size and the way that we'd laid everything out. So I think one of the things that's really, I guess, been a very hopeful thing for me is that I see Black people now seeing themselves in that space. I hear people coming to me saying, hey, how did you, what made you clear the land in this, in this way? How did you know where to begin? How did you find this land? That's another story in itself because so much land there is air property, airship property, mm -hmm. that is hard to get a clear deed on something that you can actually sell. But we found this, uh, we were able to get this 25 acres. And now we have family members, like I said, friends that are coming, they're asking questions. They see themselves or owning land or seeing this in their future. And some are actually starting to buy land and move back, even if it's just for a family home. And that is just so good. It's just a great feeling to inspire others in that way. I have to say, there's a lot there that you just mentioned, Mom. And to me, the point of people didn't believe it was Black people. That's where I want to start. The theme, Virginia, you asked how, what are the feelings of this past year? For me, a big theme has been truth, the truth about Black people because we've been lied to so much. I think it's amazing that we're having this discussion on the same week that Bruce's Beach is giving is going to be given back to the family that originally had it in California. And California. G Mom, I know you want to jump in. I'm sure you have things to say about that too. And you know, I used to live in California. I lived in Santa Monica, an extremely white community. And uh, I used to spend 4th of July at Manhattan Beach. And when I tell you, it just never felt like I really belonged there. The community is very white. And that's the truth that I thought it to be like, oh, this is some fancy community where white people live in million dollar homes on the beach. But that's a lie. 
there was a resort and the Bruce's Beach family owned it where black people could go and swim and be and enjoy. And because of eminent domain and racism, it was taken away. So while we're dealing with things like police brutality, there has been a whole movement in the 1900s, the farmland, Megan, that you were referring to earlier, taken away just because the government could be a bully to people who had less. And so For me, reclaiming spaces, Virginia, that keeps coming up. It's huge that we start to reclaim our truth. Yeah, you struck several nerves with me in that discussion. I'm going to come back to Santa Monica, so remind me. But I want to continue with Najla, who became my God. So there was a, a, um, I don't want to divulge too many things, but she had a very troubled relationship with her mother never really got to know her father. But when she went back to that land that the family owned, she seemed to find her identity. She has a 90-some-year-old aunt who still rides her grass, what do you call it, the uh, the machine? Uh And she just sees herself in different ways. And she said she gave her a birthday present recently, and she never uses them. But the one birthday present she just gave her was a wasp killer. So when she rides her motor, her uh, grass-cutting motor thing, she said, child, you know exactly what I need. So she's finding an identity of people who are from her father's family. She can claim that part of her father's uh, identity in her. That's the other part. It's not just the land but it's the people living on the land and seeing the homes that they built on that land and having a neighborhood. So I, I don't know how the wasp killer works in, but it was really important. That's the only gift she says she ever uses. <laughs> but Santa Monica, you mentioned. So I was principal at Santa Monica High School, the first woman and the first person of color to be the principal. It was 107 years old when I went there. But what I learned from that community is about how lamb was stolen. Black people used to come to Santa Monica with the families that they worked serve as servants. And nobody wanted that land. It was just that they came in the summers in a sense. That's how the Bruce thing. But a lot of people bought up that land, bought it up. By the time I was principal in 1993, most of that land, not just that beach area, most of the land that Black people owned in Santa Monica had been taken through eminent domain, freeways running through, splitting up the community, taking the property. And so one of the things I found myself fighting was for the story of Black people. White people moved in and it was as if the Black people still living there were intruders just for being there. And so one of the things that I ended up fighting so hard as a principal, I had some of my classes start digging into the question of when did your family come to Santa Monica and, <laughs> and how? And it was so shocking to the white students that Black people had owned so much of the land in Santa Monica and that they were, the white folks were the intruders, not the Black people. So that ownership of land, having a stake in where I am, I'm not an intruder, I own, that's so important to our liberation as a people. And and land is key. Uh, People lost their place in that city. They were displaced, not just uh, in terms of land, but psychologically. And by the time kids got to high school, it was, it, uh, it was a whole campaign to make it a place that worked for all the children. So land is key to 
our whole liberation. Yeah, I think about also like the stripping of wealth. One of the topics that was the craziest for me in law school was adverse possession. And it was weird because in property law, like they taught it like adverse possession is basically the legal right for someone to come claim ownership to land that is not theirs. And they have to do a number of things depending on the state. But they, as long as they kind of openly say, this is my land and maybe they pay the taxes on it for a while, whether it's theirs or not, they get to then, you know, essentially then legally later be able to take that land. And it blew my mind because when they taught it, they taught it like, we don't want people squatting on their rights. We want all land to be used. And I was like, yeah, no, like this is... This is basically white men at the time who were in power legalizing theft for themselves to take land, often from black and indigenous people. And think about the wealth that was stripped from our communities because they did that. And so me and Virginia often talk about Austin, Texas, which a lot of people don't know about. I know Devin when I was here, I had no idea. But there, you know, when we were in college and stuff, you're kind of in a bubble at UT, but the 1928 plan in Austin, Texas did the exact same thing. And we're seeing the effects of extreme gentrification today and how much wealth has been stripped from Black people in the community here, along with just the psychological and traumatic impact of having your land stripped. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on what G-Mom said. First of all, having been her granddaughter for 30-something years, I can only imagine that assignment to her students and like (laughs) the fear of God she put into them. She's like, oh, you're going to learn this history today, okay? (laughs) We're not going to be out here not knowing our story. But I think that's so connected to what Devin and Crystal and the Daniel family is doing. You know, Megan speaks of the 1928 plan in Austin. But the truth is almost every major city in America has a story like that, has a story about, so Austin is actually the first of Black freedmen's in the state of Texas. This was the site that, you know, after the tweet came a little late that Abraham Lincoln had let us go, right? This idea of creating freedom towns, right? And they're all over Austin. And then through policy, through an intentional decision, right? of who we were going to value in this city and who we could easily displace. And we oftentimes don't think about the generational impact, the trauma of not having, again, a homestead or a home place, or not knowing that when you drive across the highway, that your family, that your people have roots and have legacy in that spaces, but you were never told that. So you're, you are not only dispositioned, but you are uh, sort of segmented in understanding where you belong or where you have claim. And so, Crystal, when you were talking about folks not assuming, right, that that land or that home was owned mm-hmm. by Black people, I think about our collective trauma around that, the loss yeah. of, of collective memory. And I wonder, you know, the power of telling this story, mm-hmm. how y'all have seen your family's role in that, that not just we're going to do this for our family, but how do you tell that story? And then I know Megan is also really interested in, like, Give us the 101 breakdown. Yeah, what's the process? How do we buy this land? <laughs> How do you clear like a forest? You know, <laughs> yes. like, and now you have like a street and stuff. <laughs> Give us the process. <laughs> and that's what Nalta had to do. She had to clear a forest. That's good. Yeah. I'm not sure where to begin, but I can tell you that once you buy land and your intent is to clear that land, that there's a lot of sweat equity involved in that. <laughs> that there's a lot of hard work that I wasn't prepared for, but I got right in because literally when we bought the land and started to clear, I felt such a connectedness to this land that it was mm. un 
believable. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. And that's just the kind of, I guess, stock that I come from where I saw my grandparents doing their eight to five, nine to five every day, and then getting in their garden Mm -hmm. and, you know, planting a garden and cultivating that and and working around their property all the time. So there was always work. And so I wasn't afraid of that work. I knew what it could yield for us and it paid off. It's, It's, you know, people come in and they'll say, like I said before, how did you guys know where to sit this house? How did you know that you wanted that uh, culvert in this place? Well, I think a lot of it was God's intervention, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We just kind of looked at it and say, well, I think, I think right here. And it, and it just kind of worked out for us. But there is a lot of planning to that. Um, so you have to, you know, first have land cleared. And then there's a whole process involved in that. Finding someone to build, if that's your plan, is not easy in this area because you have limited vendors who can come in and do that kind of thing. But things just kind of worked out for us. And I just think it was meant to be. I just, from that dream, that day that I had on that porch, I was sitting there daydreaming, watching this property and I could just envision what I wanted. I think like Devin said, it just, you know, it just manifested in, in the way that I wanted. I was so pleased when I looked up one day when we were finished building, I can't remember exactly where I was on the property, but I said to myself, wow, this is exactly what I saw in my head. Mm. It was just crazy just, <laughs> you know, coming to that moment. But yes, a lot of sweat equity. There's planning. You have to do a lot of driving around, you know, because no two pieces of land are the same. So you have to decide what you want. Do you like hills and trees and valleys and ponds and creeks and things of that nature. So what do you want? What do you want to do with your property? Because not everybody wants to build like I did. Sometimes, you know, it's it's just truly an investment to have and hold. You may want to have it for agricultural purposes where you just, you know, plant pine trees like we do here in uh, East Texas and then harvest it 30 years later or buy that piece of property already set to go. But the possibilities are just endless when you do that. So tell tell them more, mom, because I mean, let's say someone's listening to this episode and they are interested in starting the process. I mean, mm-hmm. if I said, hey, mom, I think I want to go and get some acreage. Where do I start? Like, did you look online for the land? And also explain what a culvert is, because I don't think everyone probably does. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a little bit of both. It's looking on land, to, uh, looking online to see what is available, and then you have to drive around to take a look at it. Like I said, to see if that's right for you. It's here in the country. I think it was I think it was Mama G that mentioned that someone had family land. Well, what happens with this family land is that it sits for many years, and then, like I said before, it becomes airship property. So it's not something that has a clear deed to it where you can sell. And many times that land is lost because of that uh, for back taxes. And so that's how that's how we get into the predicament. If you go back into the history, a lot of times that's how black families fall into that predicament of losing family land. But it is a process of looking on land, actually uh, online, walking the land and then committing, making a commitment to do it. We actually took a pair of shears and a rope and we saw we stopped on the side of the road and we were like, 
I think this might work. And we didn't want to get lost because we didn't know where we were going. It was just full of weeds and trees. And we started walking through and making a trail through. And we decided this is it. We couldn't get a feel of everything, but we saw enough to where we thought this is the community that we want. This is the size that we're looking for. And this will work for us. So it was just basically making that commitment to do it. And then once you found the land, you just talk with the realtor or owners and then you just go talk with the realtor. Absolutely. Now that was kind of a process in and of itself because I felt that there was some racial tension there mm. because um, we ended up getting, having to get a lawyer to get the land. They wanted to put a lot of restrictions on us to, I think really to dissuade us from buying, but we ended up having to get a lawyer in the process to get the land. So I'm glad we, we followed through and didn't, let that distract us. Yeah. So it was it was a little bit of a, a legal fight in, in mm-hmm. some in some ways to get the land. And I was that was my first taste of it's like here we go again. It's like this is just not right. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to come home, trying to buy land here, just like anyone else would buy land, and I'm being pushed away. I felt because of my race. Yeah, this no idea you. that you're going home. Right. Yeah. It is your home. <laughs> like it, you know, your your family, you know, existed in that community for for decades. And so the idea that someone would then try to, you know, I'm sure it's not overt, right? But you could feel it. We know what it is when we feel it. Try to then, you know, essentially try to tell you, you don't belong there is mm-hmm. is wild. But I think it's it's part of the larger narrative of, you know, kind of white people being the default and kind of thinking that all spaces are theirs. And that Black people and people of color and Indigenous folks don't deserve the right to take up space when, you know, Indigenous people are the first inhabitants in this country. And, you know, lots of Black people and people of color have cultivated this land. And so, you know, the idea that we don't deserve to take up space, I think, is one that, especially in our generation, we're rejecting. And I think that the ability to physically take up space and to take up space intellectually and with our ideas and culturally, hopefully will continue to grow and we feel more solidified, I think, in our ability to do that because of your generation and because of G-Mom's generation. And so we see the ability to just, like what Virginia was saying, just reclaim unapologetically. Land is in some ways connected to history because one of the things that as I was looking and researching you know, property deeds to see who I could contact to buy land in this area. I started to realize just how much land was owned by our family, the Johnson family in this area. We had hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of acres of land in this area that somehow got away from the family over the years. And one of the most interesting things that I, that it led me to was the first, the Negro school, the Chester uh, Negro High School, that land was granted to the school by my family. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. I actually walked that piece of land and saw the the steps to the school still intact on that property. And that was just such a great feeling to know we, my family was a part of that. We did that. Mm -hmm. And um, it was such a, I guess, a major thing, if you will, uh, in the community. It was, it was like I said, the first and only school in that community. That's quite a legacy. I, I wanted to share that in my family background, that's loss of land. So when I was growing up, my aunts and uncles, as they were trying to growing up, et cetera, 
One of the things my aunt would always say, she would say, and that was my mother's maiden name, the Moody's Hand and Horses. Well, this goes back to the 1800s, right after the Civil War, and that my grandfather, a great-grandfather, owned land and had horses. And that was such a sense of pride to her. And because of that land, he was able to provide well. But he died in his 50s, leaving my grandmother with 10 children. And my mother recalls, she's the youngest, and that's more complicated, she is the youngest of that family. She remembers the day came to take, to remove them from that house and from the land. And it's probably taxes or something after losing him, whether she was able to keep up. But that was a sense of loss that family carried for generations, the loss of that land, because it was taken from them, stolen from them. There is a spirit of Black people rising up. <laughs> so my uh, later years, generations, my brother retired to St. Simon Island, uh, Georgia, and it had been a resort that was on the ocean there, too. And Black people, again, had gone there during the summers as uh, with families that they served and bought land. And then suddenly white people discovered, oh, we want to live here, too. Mm-hmm. And so it became a very famous kind of retirement place. But as he drove through the city, I felt such a pride in my people. He would say, we would see these signs that Black people had put up, and it said, not for sale, don't ask. And I just love that spirit. They were reclaiming it. I don't have to sell you this land. This is my land. I'm going to stay on it. And it was just such a declaration for me. I love the sign, just the clarity of the sign, not only not for sale, but the little underline that said, don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. Devin, earlier in um, our conversation, you threw out the word truth, that being a part of this process with your family was about telling the truth, reclaiming the truth, right? And then, you know, Crystal, you you use this word freedom. And so thinking about those words, freedom and truth, what do you envision your family legacy to be? What do you hope 20 years from now, 50 years from now, when your great, 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 great grandchildren are spending summers at Thelma Wood, uh, what do you hope the legacy to be? I guess for me, my family legacy is pretty simple. I think it should or what I would desire it to be is about the strength of the family, basically about the love and support received from my grandparents and how they helped us gain strength that we needed to be successful in life and to care for the next generation. The, re- the support that we received from, from them just helped us overcome many obstacles in life. So I wanted to be about honoring our family and the hope and sacrifices of those who came before us for our future. And lastly, I think I want it to be about just giving back, just like my grandparents did. Much of their life was spent caring for others. And that's why, you know, as Devin mentioned earlier, we do have the gates open at Thelma Wood. You know, I want it to be about reunions here, memories, uh, barbecues, and just love and family. So for me, I love this question. So a couple of months ago, my sister came over to my parents' house and it's the four of us, my mom, my dad, my sister, and then me. And we're extremely close. I mean, we will hang out on the couch still, the four of us, all adults, like hanging back, watching a movie. It's just our favorite thing to do. And she asked, 
what is your purpose? Like, what is God's purpose for your life? And I think God's purpose and legacy can kind of go together. And uh, what was fascinating to me was the conversation in general, but just that me and my sister had the same answer. And that answer is we always want to make sure that the people around us are okay, that they, and what that means is that they're validated. We're drawn to the people in the room who maybe don't have the spotlight on them as much. And we make sure that they get it. We make sure that people feel comfortable, welcome, included. And that's just who me and my sister always have been. And it's funny hearing the conversation about Thelma Lee today. I think it comes from her. That's how she was. Even though they didn't have a lot of money, if you know a kid ran through the home, they would get some dinner as well. And so I think just making sure that people know that they're going to be okay would be the legacy I want to leave behind. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a wonderful yeah. legacy. Yeah, it's so amazing. I think the, the when I think about the gates of Thelma Wood being open, I think about the doors of the church are open and all are welcome as they are, come as you are. And so that's just, you know, I'm a PK, so I'm always, I'm a preacher's kid to the, to the core. And, you know, grew up in a, in a little, you know, Black Baptist church. And so for me, there's always those connections to that as well and how much you feel like you belong and you can really just come as you are and be taken care of. So I love that. I love that so much. Well, is there anything else y'all want to share with the pod before uh, we go? Well, I guess we, we kind of touched on it before, but moving to the country, and I say moving because we spend the majority of our time there now because we love it so much. Every time we leave, we miss it. So we go back. <laughs> and during the pandemic, it was a place of refuge for mm-hmm. us where we could, you know, go to feel safe and you know, still be active. We could go out, take a hike around the place, you know, just basically whatever we wanted to do. We still felt like we could move around when a lot of people in the city couldn't, you know, they didn't have that privilege to do so. But I think it's really been great for me being, like I say, an inspiration to others, helping them to see and dream and realize that they can also have this for themselves and to dream of a better future for themselves and their children. So I think that's been the the pinnacle thing for me, just watching that come to play for, for, you know, for everyone that at least comes to, that come to our place, sit with us, ask about our story. They can envision it for themselves. I wanted to say that you guys were asking what's giving us hope right now. Yeah. And this conversation has just been so great sharing these stories. It's what's going to push us forward as a community. But one of my friends, I have a text thread and it's with a group of black women. They're all around my age. So millennials, and we're constantly speaking about career path, you know, improving ourselves, uh, becoming leaders in our industry and how to do that. And one of them said recently in the text thread, I'm betting big on Black right now. I'm betting big on Black people right now. And I told my mom about that. And when I told her, she was like, oh, like, you know, that's, that's good. But I think all of the foundational work that my mom and G mom have done is helping push that confidence through to me and to you, Virginia, and to you, Megan. And so the reason why my friend said that is because our kids and our kids' kids are going to be able to reap the benefits of the movement. And it's really beautiful to see. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that it's not just like 
certainly we're rooting for everyone black, but I love betting on black. <laughs> yes, that's, that's pretty amazing. Investing on black, <laughs> investing in ourselves. Yeah. Thank y'all so much. I mean, as you just said, Devin, I mean, we we're constantly like, oh yeah, we're hosting this podcast, but we want to just sit here and just like <laughs> soak it all in because it it is, it's life-giving. It's life-giving to be in conversation with folks that are pursuing their purpose, as you said, Devin, and their purpose is attached to building and attached to liberating. And so thank you all for just the, the honor and blessing of being in your presence today. Thank you for having like us. I would like to say how important vision is, but when you make it concrete, land makes it concrete. Uh, so it's not just a vision, it's how but people can see it and imagine it and see themselves in it. And so I think it's a huge gift that you're giving as we continue our struggle to be free and to liberate ourselves and to see ourselves in different lights. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is the best Saturday morning I've ever had. We do this every <laughs> Saturday morning. Check out these words of wisdom from G-Mom. I think our people have never been without a vision. That's what's so important to us. Uh, and that vision has guided us. But now, uh, through the generations and the tenacity of some of our people, we can actually create substantive expressions of that vision that our young people can see and, and not just dream about, but actually see through people like them how to make that vision real. And land symbolizes that, I think. Um, you know, we've been living in this whole concept of manifest destiny that the white people have had, that they own everything and it's God-given. I think we land helps us reverse that view and say, no, I can own land too. I have a vision. I can make it and I can extend this wealth to generations that come after me. So I think it's like setting your flag. <laughs> we are black people who own land uh, and that we are entitled to it. And so I think it's like setting a flag saying black people own part of this country. And the, the word real estate isn't, is, is, is really manifest in that. That's real wealth that they are passing on to generations.